I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. You know, there is one downside to the president uh, telegraphing the fact that he'll be selecting a, a woman on Friday or Saturday. It means that all this week we can't bug Mike Lee about whether or not he has received a phone call from the president. Yeah, uh, you know, Mike Lee has for years now been on the president's list for potential selections uh, to the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, his brother as well. And then we now know from President Trump that it'll be a, a, a woman selected, and so we can't be bugging Mike Lee. That's too bad. I, I did bug him, though. I did send a note over to his office as soon as I heard this news, uh, and I said, hey, listen, if I could get the senator on the, the program on Monday to talk about what this means, what he predicts, that, that'd be wonderful. Same request out, went out to Senator Romney's staff. And, well, as you haven't heard him on my program yet, uh, that should let you know that uh, they have both uh, not made themselves uh, available, and so we'll see what that what comes. I, I am very interested to hear what Mike Lee has to say uh, about this process, what it might look like, what he thinks it should look like. Uh, I can predict. I think. I, I think I can predict how he'll feel. I think he will be very much uh, along the lines of what the Constitution empowers the various players to do. The Constitution empowers President Trump to nominate. That's certainly going to happen. And the Constitution empowers uh, the Senate uh, to to hear this and confirm this nomination. I think that he will support both of those moves and he will support them in as expeditious a fashion as possible. Now, to the other half of Utah's senatorial representation, wild card, unknown, don't know what Senator Romney will say. Uh, he has certainly uh, expressed you know, condolences for the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But in terms of that second question, that natural what comes next question, we have yet to hear uh, from Senator Romney. Do you have any predictions or do you have any advice for him? Let's let's couch it that way. Do you have any advice for Senator Romney? Uh, I'll tell you what, if you send me a text message with your advice to Senator Romney, uh, I, I'll share it with uh, with his office. 57500 is the Utah Community Credit Union text line. 57500. Send me a note. What would you advise Senator Romney uh, to do right now. So what will happen is the president will nominate, right? The senator has no control over that. And then there will be a vote as to whether or not uh, a hearing, a nomination hearing, uh, will will commence. And that's where, uh, that's where you know, if, if you have strong feelings on this one way or another, you ought to be advising your senator. Do you advise your senator to vote for a hearing uh, or against? Uh, I, I have a pretty strong prediction. I feel pretty confident knowing what Senator Lee will do. Uh, Senator Romney, big question mark. How would you advise him? 57500, that's the Utah Community Credit Union 
text line. In just a moment, I want to talk to you about an education uh, effort that's being undertaken by the the White House. But before I do, uh, just touching on these COVID numbers real quickly, uh, increase of 622 cases from yesterday. That is uh, you know, re- relatively relative to say the weekend and Friday, uh, that that's a positive. That is a step in the uh, better direction, and hopefully, what we experienced uh, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Hopefully, that those were hopefully those were anonymous blip or uh, 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 an- what's the word anomaly anomalous anomalous blips. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. And we are going to hopefully move back down towards the lower numbers ultimately. Uh, hopefully someday zero. But uh, the trouble is that seven-day average for percent positive lab tests at six, or I'm sorry, thirteen point six percent. That's troublesome. I've also uh, been noticing that the the hospitalization rate, uh, or rather the total number of individuals currently hospitalized with COVID nineteen, it has uh, been moving upwards. Now we are not yet to the high water mark in terms of hospitalizations. I think here in Utah uh, in July, we made it uh, up into 200 plus. Right now, 144. So 144 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19. And uh, the the other number of today is that there has been one additional death, a male older than 85 years old, and he was hospitalized uh, at the time of his death, a resident of Salt Lake County. So that's the update on the numbers. Um, 622, that's the one to watch. Also, the uh, percent positive rate, that's one to watch. Uh, and then hospitalizations, really hospitalizations. As soon as we start to flex that capacity uh, or test the capacity, uh, that's when we're in real trouble. We're not yet there. Not there yet, luckily. Okay, <clears throat> now I want to take you back to last Thursday. I got a few minutes to share this with you because uh, I, I have some mixed feelings about it. The, the president announced the formation of a, of a new commission, the 1776 Commission. Here it is. It will encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. Think of that, 250 years. You have heard of the New York Times effort, the 1619 Project, which aims at uh, essentially upending the American narrative, changing it entirely. To hear it described uh, by, uh, by, by some, it is to say that uh, uh, the 1619 Project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression and not freedom. That comes from Trump uh, after describing the commission. He again said that the 1619 Project, that New York Times effort, rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression and not freedom. And because of that, uh, in an effort to counter the New York Times, as you as you always as you can well uh, bet on, when if given the opportunity to combat the New York Times, uh, the president will take it. And he's doing so uh, in, in this fashion by creating this uh, 1776 commission. It, uh, uh, it stems from 1776 Unites, and that is a, uh, it's a it's high school curriculum. It was put together by two black leaders, two civil rights veterans, Bob uh, Woodson, Ian Rowe, uh, Ian, a charter school leader. Uh, They have put together a a curriculum that looks to 
well, they say the goal is to, quote, let millions of young people know that these incredible stories, African-American stories, past and present, uh, are innovative, inventive, and those African-Americans who faced adversity did not view themselves uh, as victims and chose pathways to be agents of their own uplift. I like that phrase. Uh, they chose pathways to be agents of their own uplift. Okay. Betsy DeVos has also spoken up on this and is uh, supportive of this effort. She says that while she is not typically in favor of nationwide curriculum, and let me just add my voice to that. I, I, th- this whole effort, uh, both the 1619 and now the 1776, uh, n- nationwide curriculum is, is a little unsettling to me. Uh, you know, not, not, that, not that facts should vary from region to region across this country, but as you very well know, uh, the way that people learn, uh, the pace, uh, what is exciting to them, uh, there's so much variety, uh, and there are so many different needs in this region and that region. Uh, socioeconomics play a big role in this, uh, that, that you need to and must, and uh, listen, I'm, I'm off on some like federalism tangent here, but uh, education, you leave that to the states. You leave education to the states, and yet we have uh, this effort here now to uh, essentially we have dueling history curriculums. I'd like to see them both go away. Uh, The president will likely be signing an executive order right now empowering uh, the, the, the dissemination of this 1776 commission uh, stuff. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, what my hope is that while it is disseminated, that its uh, implementation is not compulsory. Uh, that is often tied to grant money. And so uh, we're, we're kind of treading on thin ice here. Uh, and if this commission's curriculum is tied to funding, then we're in real trouble. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point. But we'll follow the progress. And as soon as that executive order is signed, uh, I'll share it with you as we learn uh, the details. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to return to my uh, segment on the day in the life of a candidate next. Welcome back to Live Mike. Of course, today on this program, and likely uh, up until a nomination is handed down by the president, uh, confirmation hearings uh, are executed by the United States Senate. Uh, You and I are going to be talking about this for some time uh, because, uh, you know, despite um, you know what, what? What you might think, uh, despite the state of affairs on Friday morning, uh, everything is different now, right? Not not to uh, not to belittle the memory or be disrespectful, but uh, in the world of politics, there's a a shiny new object to play with right now. And those who uh, make a career out of politicking and uh, fighting and coming up with uh, tools and tactics to outmaneuver the opponent, uh, this, is some, this is some pretty enticing fodder. And we're going to see some nasty things said about a lot of people, and we are going to see uh, reinterpretations of statements made in the past. Uh, we will see uh, disre- d- disapprovals or, and disregarding of the Constitution and the, power, and the powers the Constitution affords the President and the Senate. But... What I would like to remind you of and what I will keep as my North Star as we march on towards whatever comes of the election in November, the vacancy of a Supreme Court seat, or anything dealing with the federal government of the United States, we do have a North Star, and that North Star is the Constitution. 
And so as applied to this circumstance, the president is well within his right and power to nominate. And we will likely see that on Friday or Saturday. The United States Senate, specifically the majority leader, is well within his rights and powers uh, to hold a hearing. And we will likely see that. And anything else uh, is just noise. Anything else uh, is going to be from either side, right? Anything else is going to be hurled into the ether to distract you and to uh, get you uh, to take your eye off the ball, which is the Constitution. Speaking of the Constitution, there was a few years ago a confirmation hearing which took place before the United States Senate. You see, it's not just it's not just cabinet members. Uh, it's not just Supreme Court nominees that uh, are placed before the United States Senate, uh, but also lower lower level positions, specifically uh, appointees to the uh, Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals, on which Amy Coney Barrett currently sits. We've spoken about her a number of times on the program today. She, uh, in my estimation, is the front runner to receive the nomination by the president. She was uh, fully vetted. Uh, during the the Kavanaugh selection process, she uh, shared a spot on the very short list alongside Kavanaugh, uh, that uh, nomination ultimately going to him, as you know. Uh, but she uh, may be, uh, I think, the announcement to come from President Trump on Friday. She faced Dianne Feinstein in 2017. And I want you to hear some of what the senator uh, had to say and had to ask of uh, Judge Barrett back in 2017. lives loudly within you. You suggested that Roe is not a super precedent because litigants continue to challenge it. However... I'm going to move on to... Uh, there's a, a question of religion uh, that Senator Feinstein brings up. I want you to hear it in its totality, and then you'll hear the response uh, from uh, Amy Barrett. You are controversial. Let's start with that. You're controversial because many of us that have lived our lives as women um, really recognize the value of finally being able to control our reproductive systems. And Roe entered into that, obviously. Um, I listened to your answers to uh, Senator Grassley's question, and it leaves me a bit puzzled uh, because you have a long history um, of believing uh, that your religious uh, beliefs should prevail. As you well know, we don't have a religious test. In fact, uh, the Constitution prohibits it. There is no test for uh, elected or appointed office or uh, employment. All right, That is against the Constitution. It's against the law. It is not the American way. And yet somehow the senator here thinks it's appropriate. I want to play for you uh, Amy Barrett's answer. Again, Amy Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett is uh, on the very short list and possible nominee uh, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, by uh, President Donald Trump, of course, uh, after a, a Senate hearing. But here is Amy Barrett's response to Feinstein challenging her religious beliefs. Thank you, Senator Feinstein. Um, that wasn't my list. I was addressing arguments that had been made by other professors, serious, well-respected scholars like Richard Fallon at Harvard and Michael Gerhardt at North Carolina. And it wasn't my list. I was quoting them, and I was quoting their definition of super precedent. 
One thing I would observe is that for a court of appeals, all Supreme Court precedent is super precedent. Um, so as I said to Chairman Grassley, as a court of appeals judge, if I were confirmed, I would follow all Supreme Court precedent without fail. Also, they're responding to the idea that uh, and the accusation that she may seek to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade didn't answer, didn't respond directly, but uh, has here and in other instances made it known uh, her belief that uh, that that Roe v. Wade has been you know, legally determined that there uh, will not likely be an overturning of Roe v. Wade. There may be uh, questions of funding that come up and that she uh, may participate in where the question asked being, should public monies, should taxpayer funds uh, be used uh, to to finance abortions? That may be something that comes up. But uh, but the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, the prediction by uh, by Judge Barrett is that it will not be overturned. Uh, Mike Lee, not long after that exchange, again, this is from 2017. I'm just giving you a glimpse of what could happen. Uh, Mike Lee uh, was asked uh, about this, and he talked about how religion, as it was brought up by Senator Feinstein in a hearing like this, really has no place, should not be discussed. Look, as a religious minority myself, uh, my ears tend to peak up a little bit when somebody starts inquiring into a nominee's religious views. There's a reason why Article 6 of the Constitution expressly prohibits religious tests. Our founding fathers rightly concluded that no one should be disqualified uh, from a position based on their religious beliefs or or the absence thereof. Uh, This is a a non-issue. It shouldn't come up, and I don't see any good reason to bring it up in a judicial hearing. Why do I bring up any of this? Why do I talk about this maybe speculated justice, maybe, maybe, there are a lot of maybes here, and I'm reaching back into 2017. It's because of that point I made at the onset of this conversation. There is a North Star here, and it is the Constitution. And so when anyone starts to bring up anything outside of that, uh, talk about uh, hypocrisy and ethics and all this, uh, it's all well and good. And everyone probably goes into it, uh, you know, feeling earnest and honest about the thing about the matter they're debating. But the Constitution has all of this settled. Number one, there is no religious test. We know that. Fine. Not a problem. Senator Feinstein may have forgotten. We've been reminded of it. Uh, The president is empowered to appoint. Some have forgotten that. We've now been reminded of it. The Senate is empowered to confirm. Some have forgotten that. We've now been reminded of it. And as this chapter of history plays out, it'll be a further reminder that regardless of the human element, the human noise, uh, the bickering that you and I may find ourselves engaged in, that the Constitution is ultimately the adult in the room and is the North Star that will lead us out of this mess. Quick break. When we return, we're going to have a look at some COVID numbers. But no, 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 no. Not the, not the kind from the hospital. We're looking to the sewers for the numbers I'll share with you next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, will find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.